As historic preservationists, we can often fall into only thinking about history through the framework of buildings and sites, or even get caught up on buildings from just one era. That's not the case for our guest today, Dr. Bill Schindler. Bill is one of the world's leading experimental archaeologists and an expert on primitive technologies and historic foodways. Join us today as Bill explains how food has driven technological development throughout human history, how we are uniquely positioned in that history, and why we may want to look at ancient foodways to inform how we eat in the future. Hopefully we won't make you too hungry, because this is PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Dr. Bill Schindler, who is an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. He is an experimental archaeologist and primitive technologist, and the primary focus of his research at this time is how to use information about ancestral diets and food acquisition, as well as processing, to better inform how we should be feeding ourselves. Lots of cool things to talk to Dr. Schindler about, and also... For those PreserveCast listeners out there uh, who are keeping track, this is our first international interview. We're talking to Dr. Schindler. Although he's a professor associated with Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, he is currently located in Ireland. So we're, we're joining him through the magic of Skype all the way from Ireland. So Dr. Schindler, it's a pleasure to have you on PreserveCast today with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. So lots to talk about here, but... Give us some sense for how you got into this line of work. How did you decide you were going to go become a professor of anthropology? And then maybe from there, we can kind of jump into all of these cool topics about what exactly is experimental archaeology and all that good stuff. But how did you become this? <laughs> sure, I, I'd be happy to tell you. So it's a long story. I'll give, you, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of it. But I grew up actually in Monmouth County, New Jersey, only a couple miles from the beach, from the Jersey Shore. Not the kind of place you would necessarily think that someone who's as interested in hunting and fishing and trapping and ancestral ways of life would necessarily grow up. But my father made it a priority to have me out in the woods uh, exploring nature as, as much as possible. And quite often we drove hours to get to a place for this to happen. But he had me hunting and fishing and trapping and hiking and camping on a regular basis. And at the same time, my mother had me in the kitchen whenever I was home. So I was living what I thought at the time were these almost two separate lives or two separate threads in my life. And it wasn't until much later, which I'm sure we'll get to later on, that I realized that the two different threads really connected well. But I suppose what really got me into the archaeology was this need that I had to do, uh, to connect even more than I was with my food and with my past. You know, it was wonderful to hunt. It was wonderful to camp. It was wonderful to do all these things. But I always wanted to get to the root of it. I always wanted to know, you know, what was the next step to connect me one more level? It was great to hunt. It was great to, to be a part of the process of getting my own food. But, you know, something just didn't always sit right with me when I was firing a gun that somebody else had made. So I started to get into archery. And then that led to the next step where I wanted to learn how to make my own bows. And, of course, I then had to make my own arrows and arrowheads and 
when I got to the point where I could actually do this and I found people that in this world could actually do these things and there's a larger community of them than you would imagine, I wanted to not only know how it could have been done, but how were people doing it in the same place that I was thousands of years ago? And I realized that in order to learn that, it was archaeology that would inform me. And so you went and got a degree in archaeology. Where'd you go to school? So I, I started college at uh, Ohio State. I got recruited to wrestle there straight out of high school. And um, I know it's at the topic of this conversation, but it is important to the way that my life, I think, ended up turning out for now. I, I, I ended up failing out of school and then a year later, two years later, dropping out of school, both at Ohio State. I had an eye disease, a degenerative eye disease called keratoconus. I ended up going legally blind. I had been through at the time seven or eight different majors and had no idea what I was going to do. I couldn't see anything. And I finally came back home after several years. Wrestling went great, but the school didn't go so well. When I came back home after almost a full four years in college, having failed and dropped out, we finally found a doctor that could diagnose me, and we found another one that could finally start to help me. And I got back into school. Uh, I still, at that time, didn't have any real guidance. No, didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I just knew I needed to graduate. And I had been through a lot of different majors that were all sort of what I wanted to do. I was a forestry major. I was a nutrition major. I was all these different things. But I didn't really realize that archaeology was a real thing that I could spend the rest of my life doing. I just hadn't been advised in that way. So I ended up graduating from actually the College of New Jersey with a double major history and secondary ed, which again was close. I loved to teach. I loved the past. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And I went back to college uh, for my master's and PhD at Temple University for archaeology and anthropology. And so kind of makes sense with given your background that you kind of fell into this world of experimental archaeology because you like working with your hands and getting to see how these things were done originally. Why don't you explain for people maybe what experimental archaeology, or I'd be curious to hear how you define what is experimental archaeology or a primitive technologist? Let, let me start by saying a little bit about what we do, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try to come at a few different definitions, because there's, there's certainly more than one, depending on how you interpret it. As you can imagine, on an archaeology site, the things that we pull out of the ground, the artifacts, the further back in time you go, the more they are foreign to the sorts of things that we're used to today, sometimes more difficult to identify, or they're, they're very difficult to, to understand how they, how they were used or how they operated, how they were made. And what an experimental archaeologist does is they would actually conduct an experiment. Quite often, they would, they would recreate uh, technologies from the past. They could be historic, they could be prehistoric, uh, replicate these technologies, and then try to find something out and try to answer these archaeological questions that we have. How was this stone tool made? What kind of function did it have? How well did it perform? How efficient was it? Why was it eventually discarded? Was it a projectile point, or was it a knife, or was it a scraper? And how can you tell? My focus is on these really early prehistoric technologies, stone tools, prehistoric ceramics, hide tanning, and uh, foraging, hunting, these sorts of things to better understand what I found out later on was my main focus was always surrounding food. So uh, an experimental archaeologist would conduct experiments. Uh, we would have a hypothesis. We would have a, a set list of stages. We, we would put this experimental process through and we would replicate or recreate these ancient technologies to better understand or interpret the archaeological record. You know, a field archaeologist will get data from the ground and then the next step is to try to make sense of that data. Experimental archaeology is one way, that, uh, one of many ways that we could make sense of that data, interpret what life was like in the past. 
So maybe you could give us an example of one of these things where you said you would have a hypothesis and you go through an experiment and try and figure out. Could you give us an example of how you've done that in your own past in your career? Well, here, here's a good one. A really good friend of mine, an archaeologist by the name of uh, Dr. Tim Messner, he's a, uh, an archaeologist professor up at SUNY Potsdam. Several years ago, we were looking at the use of this one particular plant called Peltandra virginica, arrow arum. It's a huge marshland plant. It grows all over the Middle Atlantic region. There was a lot of evidence for this particular plant being used in tremendous amounts in the past, prehistorically by Native Americans in our area. And one of the problems with this plant, however, is it's highly toxic. It has this protease compound in it. It has these things called raphides, these microscopic needles that have a, uh, a toxin in them that when you ingest this, it pierces the skin in your throat and releases this, this protease compound and your throat swells up and you die. So we were trying to figure out how could Native Americans in the past actually be taking this plant and rendering it safe to eat and, and also nutritious. So we spent a ton of time harvesting a lot of these plants and looking at the ethno-historic accounts by John Smith and others that documented the Native American use of these things and conducted a range of experiments to better understand how people could have possibly detoxified this plant and what that process was like. And most importantly for, for archaeologists to try to identify if there's any archaeological signatures to these different processing strategies that we could find in the archaeological record. So one of the cool things about this plant is that it has a lot of starch grains in it. Starch grains preserve over time. And what we found is that the different processing technologies left different markers on these starch grains. So you could actually pull starch grains out of several thousand-year-old tools, tell that not only it was from this particular plant, but you could also get a pretty good idea about how that plant was processed to make it safe. And so how did they process it? Now, I mean, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat here. Well, we don't know the way, but what we were able to do is determine that there are several different ways. One is through extensive cooking, low temperature cooking that took several days in in in-ground pits in the ground. Another way is to um, slice it very, very thin and dry it in the sun. And those are two of about four or five different ways to do it. But the cool part and almost the takeaway from this is that even though those all could be done, they leave a different signature on the starch grain. So if we pull you know, a starch grain off of a prehistoric tool, we could tell that it was cooked in a low temperature, moist environment for a long period of time or whether or it was dried in the sun and, and you know, these sorts of things. And you're able to tell that because you actually did it? Is that... Exactly. And we identified what those different starch grain, the markers on those starch grains were. And I have to ask, did you eat it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And you lived to tell the tale. So obviously you did it right. Yes. We, there were several ways to do it. And several of the ways we did it worked very well. Yes. And no choking. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. So, Bill, why is it so important to understand technology that was used in the past. I mean, it is great to understand why and I suppose how these Native Americans were able to process this food, but what can that inform us about our modern world? Is there an impact or is it purely historical research? There are huge impacts. So there's a lot of very good reasons that we've we've used for a long time to not only justify what we do, but certainly make sense of it. I mean, there's connecting with the past, connecting with the environment, connecting with, with ourselves. All these things are really important reasons. But one of the reasons that I think I can answer this question in a really good way when I talk about food, one of the reasons that this is so very important to us now is when we look in, in, into the world of food, we are in a really bad place. Uh, we've never been so sick as we are today as a species. We are the sickest species on the planet. We've done it to ourselves. And I, I, I think that the answers 
and, and I'm not talking like a purely paleo diet sort of thing here, but the answers do lie in the past. And, and let me explain why. Everything that we are today, how we look, the size of our brains, the size and the, the way that our guts work, the size of our bodies from a biological sense, but also everything that we are culturally today has something to do with the way that we've transformed our diets over time, which is directly related to technological developments over three and a half million years. So in other words, everything that we are today can be explained or understood or maybe only understood by first starting with understanding this three and a half million year long journey that we've been on. And it's a technological journey. Let me try to explain what this means. Prior to three and a half million years ago, everything that we put into our bodies was solely got captured, processed, anything by what we had biologically. And even though we think we're at the top of the food chain, we are the weakest species on the planet. Our, our nails are useless, our muscles are useless, our teeth are useless, or we're not very fast, and our guts are very inefficient compared to other animals on this planet. You're painting a really pretty picture here right now. I know, I know, but it's going to get better. <laughs> okay. The only things that we could eat prior to three and a half million years ago were things that this really somewhat inefficient primate could have access to. And for the most part, it was fruits and vegetables. And while we love our fruits and vegetables, they're not very nutrient dense. They're mostly full of water. They're full of vitamins. They're full of minerals, certainly. But there's not a lot there compared to other foods that we, we access later on in our, in our dietary past. So starting three and a half million years ago, we make our first stone tool. And it's a simple stone tool. It's literally made by striking two rocks together and creating a sharp edge. But that sharp edge, that flake that takes less than a second to make, transformed our relationship with our environment and transformed our relationship with our food. It is the first time that we use the tool to process food before we even put it into our bodies. And what we see at that time period is we start for the first time putting meat into our bodies. And we're not hunting. We're actually scavenging animals that other animals had killed out on the African savanna. But we can take this tool and butcher a partially eaten carcass, take meat back to the elderly and the children and eat it in the safety of trees and other places. And we see a change in body size and most importantly, a change in brain size. Then over time, about 2 million years ago, we begin to hunt and we begin to control fire. And when we can hunt, one of the things that we do is we can access those animals first. We have first access to the animals. We, we aren't scavenging any longer other things that other animals are killed. We killed those animals, and we have the best parts available to us right away. And the most nutrient-dense parts of those animals are the guts, the blood, the fat, and the brains, right, and the marrow. These are the things that the predators out on the savannah were eating first and leaving the flesh behind. And we could have access to it, and we could cook it. And then we're fermenting, and then we're doing a ton of other things as time goes on. So if you, if you look at that trajectory over time, what you see is almost every technology that we invented – it has something to do with food, acquiring food, processing food, storing food, what have you. And it looks like every one of those things has something to do with nutrient density, accessing nutrient-dense food and increasing the nutrient density of foods. You know, we start with fruits and vegetables, then we get to meat, then we get to organs and fat, and then we get to things like fire and fermentation where we're increasing the density. And that's the story of our past right there. It has to do with nutrient density. And if you look at that, and then compare that trajectory, how we think about our diets today, it's completely different. The paradigm has shifted. In what way? I mean, how do you, what, what's the big shift? 
I'm convinced that the way people thought about feeding themselves in the past, and, and I'm not a big person to say always or never, but this is, I think is a pretty close one. I think I'm convinced that when people thought about how to feed themselves in the past, what they wanted to do was get the most amount of nutrition with the least amount of work, right? That makes sense. Today, it's the exact opposite. We want to eat all day and not get fat. I mean, that, that literally is when you think about, I mean, if you think about it, when we make a decision about how to feed ourselves, we love to eat. It's a social thing. We eat all the time. We have snacks and we do not want to get fat. So we actually seek out nutrient-free foods. The packaging in the grocery stores even support this. There was a study done a few years ago in modern American grocery stores and something like 80% of the packaged food in modern American grocery stores boasts about what it doesn't have in it. Low calorie, low fat, gluten-free, sugar-free. Now, I'm not saying we should have these things in our diets. I don't think many of these things we shouldn't. But the way, the paradigm, what we, how we think about feeding ourselves is the exact opposite of the way that it's been for almost the entirety of our existence. You're painting a picture really vividly, and you said it was going to be a good answer, and it was a fantastic answer in that this is a perfect way in which the past sort of illuminates perhaps problems with the current situation or, or perhaps even the future. I mean, are you sort of making that next jump then or the suggestion that we're seeing physiological changes or, or challenges because of this paradigm shift in the way that we perceive and evaluate food? Sure. So I think first off, to, to start to answer your question, I think the first thing we need to do is understand this context. This should, this should be the place that we start having a conversation from. You know, if, if we understand how we got here, what it took to get here to what we are today, and then from that point, evaluate what we need to do to, to move forward to address issues of diet and health and sustainability and human environment and relationships and all these sorts of things and healthcare and medicine and all this. We first need to have that get, get back to the, to the beginning and understand, OK, what, what was it that built us to what we are today? Because I don't think we're at that point. Do I see changes? Sure. I mean, even things like, you know, we, we have never had such a nutrient free dietary culture on the planet. And we've also never experienced the same, the, the obesity issues that we have today. I mean, the fact that we can even have obesity with malnourishment in the same person completely supports everything I've just said. Yeah, that, It's almost that is... impossible to do. If somebody told you 20,000 years ago that that was going to be the case, nobody would believe it. It would have been impossible 20,000 years ago. We work hard to make that happen. <laughs> this has been really fascinating, really illuminating. Why don't we take a quick break right here? And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that we can learn from the past and perhaps ways in which we can use some of these historic food ways to improve upon and, and not end up with a obese but malnourished world. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast when we're back. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. As mentioned earlier, part of Bill's work involves experimental archaeology. That means recreating the techniques and methods used by historical people as accurately as possible in order to test out theories of how they live their lives. It's learning history through doing. While Bill's work with foodways is amazing, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite cases of experimental archaeology in action. One of the most famous instances of this learning and testing by doing has to be the Kon Tiki voyage. In 1947, 
a Norwegian adventurer named Thor Heyerdahl set out to prove the feasibility of a balsa wood raft made in the traditional pre-Columbian style, making the trip from Peru to the Polynesian islands. This was part of a larger theory that settlement of the Polynesian islands ran east to west from South America, and not west to east, as is still the accepted model today. After a harrowing 101-day trip that was the subject of a book and an Oscar award-winning documentary, Thor and his crew did arrive at the Tuamotu Islands in French Polynesia and succeeded in proving the theory was possible, but still not necessarily likely. In the years since Heyerdahl's journey, there have been a number of well-documented voyages by Polynesian navigators using traditional methods that seem to support the west-to-east theory. Notably, the Hokulea canoe traveled over 2,500 miles from Hawaii to Tahiti with only the night sky and ocean swells as tools to navigate. Huh? The navigator of that trip, affectionately known as Papa Mau, was able to find land based only on feeling the angles of ocean swells hit the side of the canoe. This voyage, combined with linguistic and DNA evidence, continues to support the West-East migration theory. But the idea of testing by doing that Heyerdahl employed continues to be used in many different areas to this day. From attempts to recreate the movement of stones to build Stonehenge to long-term projects testing out the lifestyle of pre-Columbian Native Americans, experimental archaeology has a proven track record of demonstrating how human beings have interacted with the world around them. The way they lived their lives, traveled and built their homes... I don't want to take up your time when there's a real expert back on PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today by Dr. Bill Schindler, an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. He is currently overseas in Ireland, and we're talking to him about all things historic foodways, experimental archaeology, primitive technology. And Bill, when we were talking last before the break, I mean, you, you really kind of drilled home this point about how weird things are getting and that you can have both obesity and malnourishment in the same human at the same time, which is just sort of the strange paradox. You've painted the picture that perhaps things were a little bit healthier or at least sort of oriented correctly in the past. Are there food ways or methods or traditions that we could take from the prehistoric or even the historic period to inform our lives today? Are there, are there things that we could be doing better? I mean, should we be going out and, and butchering with stone tools? Is that, is that the way to do it? I mean, what, what are you suggesting here, I guess? I think there's a lot we can learn from the past. And I think there's a lot of people that would agree with me because a lot of the, the trends now are, are pushing in that direction. Things like the paleo diet, for instance. Um, there's a new book in the UK called Stop Eating for the Winter, where uh, they're looking at the way hunters and ga- gatherers used to potentially store up carbohydrate-rich resources in their bodies to, to make it through the winter and that we shouldn't be doing these things any longer because they're, these carbohydrate-rich foods are now available all year long. There's a lot of different ways of doing this. The focus of, of my work now, the reason that I'm here on the sabbatical in Ireland, um, and even the focus of, we can talk about it in a little while, the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which we're building at Washington College, is looking into the past to, to get at these answers. But 
I think the biggest lesson that we can take from the past is if we pay attention to this idea of nutrient density. And let me give you one more example before we move on. I kind of painted a picture of, uh, it was a very brief picture of three and a half million years of our dietary past. But one of the things that we've done over time is we've developed technologies that allowed us to access nutrient-dense foods and increase the nutrient density or availability of nutrients in the foods that we're eating. And that's what these technologies have done. Really cool but strange paradox in all of this is if you look at the most expensive organ in our body, calorie expensive organ in our body, our brains, over time as, you, as we hit these different technological milestones, our brain is increasing in size. So we're doing something right, right? I mean, we're, we're getting more quality, amazing food into our bodies. Our bodies are growing and, and our brains are growing as well. But the crazy thing is that everything that we have biologically in our bodies that allow us to access food both outside of and inside of our bodies and, and turn that food into nutrition that we can use as, as, as fuel is getting smaller. Our teeth are getting smaller over time and our guts are shrinking. The very part of our body that's taking this food that we're putting into our, into our bodies and transforming it into stuff that end up fueling our bodies is getting smaller. And it's, it's, it's almost 60% the size of what it would be in a similar size primate. And the reason this can happen is because we are processing food outside of our bodies. We're doing it with stone tools. We're doing it with fire. We're doing it with ceramics. We're doing it with cooking. We're doing it with fermenting. We're doing it with all these different things. And now it's the mainstay of what we do. I mean, we turn on a blender. We use a food processor. We use the stove. We use the microwave. We use all these things all the time. But just about every other animal on the planet, any type of food processing takes place inside of their body. We're doing it outside of our body. So one of the lessons we can take from the past is the reason we are biologically the way that we are is because we develop technologies that focus on nutrient density. The technologies in the food processing industry today do the exact opposite. They don't care about nutrient density. They don't care about nutrition. They care about things like shelf life. How can things ship very far without them getting bruised or ruined? How can we grow bigger apples or bigger peaches? And almost every one of those things is at the expense of the nutrients in the food. So one of the very first things we need to do without worrying about anything else is we need to cook at home. When you cook at home, you bypass that, that entire system. The other cool thing about when we, when we do cook at home and, and learn that knowledge again is we are taking a lot of the power away from these major food processing companies, because right now the ball's in their court. They own all the knowledge. They own, you know, we, they, we've taken the home cook and turned them into people in a lab coat behind a hidden wall that are doing these things. And quite often, in many cases now, they require a degree to even do these things. And it takes that that takes the power away from from the family, right? That takes the power away from the, the person at home is trying to feed their family. And we no no longer know how these foods are made. And, and one of the drawbacks from that, the problems with it, is we're condensing completely different foods into the same category, and we can't even have a real conversation about food because of that. So for example, we have the same term for the sandwich bread that's in the package with 42 ingredients on a, on, on a shelf, and that long fermented sourdough bread with three ingredients that are completely different foods. We could call them both bread. You know, it doesn't make any, any sense whatsoever. We do the same thing with milk. You know, a grass-fed cow, raw milk, full fat, you know, thing that's coming out of a cow is a completely different food than pasteurized skim milk 
that comes out of a carton on the grocery store shelves, not even in the same category. And that's because somebody else is, is doing all this, and then it comes down to us with a nutritionist or a doctor's recommendation. So what are you doing, particularly, I know we've, you've mentioned this idea of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, and, and it's come up you know, in some of the materials that you provided us. What is the Eastern Shore Food Lab? Is it going to attempt to try and address some of those challenges? The Eastern Shore Food Lab is, um, we're building it at Washington College. It's, it's going to launch at the end of next summer. It's truly interdisciplinary. Every major on campus will be involved in some form. So we're hitting it from all angles. It's going to be focused on research. It's going to be focused on teaching. It's going to be focused on food production. And we're studying and experimenting with sustainable food systems, uh, mostly focused on the Eastern Shore food shed, right? That's its primary context. And we're researching the resources unique to this region based on things like weather, climate, soil, chemistry, microbiology, et cetera. And most importantly, fusing these historic and prehistoric foodways with modern technologies. You know, the whole purpose is to re-envision our food system. So everything from how we define food to how we grow and prepare it. And the idea here is that I do think there's a lot of really important lessons we can learn from the past. Biologically, we are the same creatures as we've been for 300,000 years. Modern day Homo sapiens appeared 300,000 years ago. Biologically, we're essentially the same. In other words, we need the same things in our bodies to be healthy as we did 300,000 years ago. And our diets are the complete opposite. However, what uh, I'm not trying to escape from or what is completely apparent to us is that culturally we're very different. So we can't adopt the same exact diet as we had 300,000 years ago for a lot of different reasons. Everything from the fact that we need to bring kids to soccer practice and you know we probably have at least two jobs in the household and different access to resources and knowledge and all these sorts of things, as well as different um, expectations of taste and texture and flavor and smells in our food. So the focus of what we're trying to do is capture and understand these prehistoric and historic technologies that were focused on nutrient density and find ways to fuse them with modern culinary techniques, things that modern chefs and, and other food producers are doing, and find some sort of a, of a central place to create something that makes sense and is meaningful and relevant in, in, in the modern-day Western world. Which is really exciting, and, and also for those of us here in Maryland, pretty exciting that it's going to be taking place here on our uh, eastern shore. And that, that opens up in August of 2018. Is that the goal? Yeah, August or September of next summer, yes. And if you're interested, we do have, and now we are in the midst of doing all sorts of work. So we do have a website up with some information, and it's at www.washcall.edu backslash ESFL. So Washcall for Washington College and then Eastern Shore Food Lab for the ESFL. Um, if you put an Eastern Shore Food Lab in Google, you can find it. As well as if you're interested, so this this year, uh, my, my sabbatical work is to is to lay a lot of the groundwork and foundation for the work that we're going to be doing at the Eastern Shore Food Lab. So I've paired up with University College Dublin, who has you know, one of the world's leading experimental archaeology graduate programs, as well as Odeus Food, which is a very forward-thinking food producer and supplier in Ireland. And we are spending the year working with foragers and top, you know, Michelin star chefs all around Europe, hunters and fishermen and, and, and seaweed foragers and all sorts of amazing people doing amazing things with food, working to begin that, um, that conversation and, and, and the fusion. And if you're interested in following along with that project, that's at www.foodevolutions, with an S, dot org. And there's information on the project as well as a blog that can keep you up to date with what we're doing here. 
And in the past, you've also done some work with uh, Nat Geo. That laid some of the groundwork and the foundation for the work we're, we're doing here. So that that was called The Great Human Race. It was a 10-episode series where myself and a woman named Kat Bigney co-starred um, in the series. And the idea was over 10 episodes, we were going to retrace the steps of our ancestors beginning at two and a half million years ago. And in each episode, we were in a different location in the world. We started in Tanzania, where the you know the cradle of civilization really took place anyhow at two and a half million years ago. And we ended at 5,000 years ago in Oregon, and we hit 10 places in between. And at each location, we were recreating a uh, specific time period that was very important to our past. Mostly it had to do with a, a new technology or suite of technologies that was developed. And in each location, we had to live for about eight days at a time using only th- those technologies that our ancestors had at that particular time and place. So if people listening to this are, are really into this and want to dive into all things Dr. Bill Schindler, they could probably go stream that on uh, you know, Nat Geo On Demand or something like that and, and, and catch that series uh, and, and binge it now. Yeah, so you, you can... I know there's a lot of information on the, on the Nat Geo website if you look up The Great Human Race. I know it's available on Amazon, and I'm pretty sure there's a, a few other locations, Netflix or something, that you can find it. Perfect. Well, before we leave you today, after what has been a really illuminating discussion, and perhaps the first of, of several, particularly once you get back to Maryland, maybe we can have you in studio, or maybe we can come out and visit the food lab. But the question that we ask every person before they, they depart here on PreserveCast is what is their favorite historic site project or place that they've ever had the chance to work on. So I know it's a tough question, but do you have one? I'm sure this interview has probably been a little different than most. I think my answer is going to probably be a little different than most of, of what you've had. It's, it's not going to be a traditional archaeology site that I'm referencing here, but it's going to be one of the episodes we did on the great human race that real transformed the way that I, look, I looked at the world. You know, being able to literally, I know it was only for a period of eight days, but live all of the different major time periods of our of our past was groundbreaking, you know, monumental opportunity for me. But one of those particular episodes uh, took place in the Republic of Georgia, and it was set at about forty thousand years ago, uh, the Upper Paleolithic, and we had the opportunity to recreate composite points, you know, blade and core composite points on um, embedded in in bone with with hide glue and and pine pitch and at laterals and, and, and all of it. And I got to hunt a wild boar with a, a weapon system we made completely, you know, from scratch with, with stone tools. And that showed me, you know, firsthand in, in a visceral way up front, the power of these technologies that our ancestors developed even tens of thousands of years ago. So I'd have to say it was that. That is by far the most unique answer we've received to that question, Um, but we would expect nothing less. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Bill Schindler, it's been a real pleasure. It's been illuminating. It's been exciting. I want to go out and and watch this series. I want to visit the food lab, and I I want to start processing my own food. Uh, So you've had an impact on me. Hopefully you've had an impact on the rest of our listeners. Thanks for all your good work, and enjoy the rest of your time overseas. Thank you so much. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. 
Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>